Season's creepings, dear listener. I'm Rob Kirkup, and this is How Haunted. Christmas is upon us once again, and in the second annual Nightmare Before Christmas special, I will read real ghost stories from listeners. Christmas is intrinsically linked with the telling of ghost stories, so it seems like the perfect time to tell these stories of time slips, premonitions, gifts from beyond the grave, and frightening encounters with the dead. There'll also be poltergeists dropping by in the form of authors, podcasters, bloggers and YouTubers, and they'll tell you of their own scary experiences in their own words. Two of these stories are accompanied by audio recordings, which are most definitely not for those of a nervous disposition, as they appear to capture the voices of the dead. You have been warned. This Christmas episode contains real ghost stories from listeners just like you, and actual audio recordings of ghosts. This episode is most definitely not for the faint of heart. Listen on at your own peril. Amidst the twinkling lights, festive cheer, and heartwarming tales of the season, a peculiar tradition has long held its place in the tapestry of Christmas celebrations. The telling of ghost stories. But why do we tell ghost stories at Christmas time? This seemingly incongruous pairing of the supernatural with the spirit of the holidays has its roots in the rich history of folklore and the human fascination with the mysterious and unseen. The tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time can be traced back to the darkest days of winter, when the veil between the living and the departed was believed to be at its thinnest. These tales served as a way to confront the fears associated with the cold barren landscapes and the encroaching darkness, providing a cathartic release for these pent-up anxieties. In Victorian England this tradition flourished, reaching the peak of its popularity in the 19th century. Telling spooky stories gave families and friends something to do during those long dark nights, before electricity, when there was little to do once darkness fell. Tara Moore, who is the Assistant Professor of English at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania and the author of Victorian Christmas in Print, and the editor of the Valencourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories, says on the subject, The long midwinter nights meant folks had to stop working early, and they spent their leisure hours huddled close to the fire. Plus, you didn't need to be literate to retell the local ghost story. Charles Dickens, the literary giant of the era, played a pivotal role in solidifying this practice, penning a series of chilling Christmas ghost stories that captured the imagination of the public. His works such as The Chimes, The Haunted Man, and of course, A Christmas Carol in 1843, explored themes of redemption, social justice, and the consequences of human actions at Christmas time, all while weaving in elements of the supernatural. The appeal of ghost stories at Christmas lies in their ability to heighten the contrast between the warmth and comfort of the season's festivities and the stark chill of the supernatural. The crackling fireplace, the aroma of the Christmas dinner cooking, and Christmas songs echoing through the halls provide a cosy backdrop against which tales of hauntings, apparitions, and spectral warnings unfold. The juxtaposition of the festive and the frightening creates a unique blend of emotions, allowing listeners to experience a sense of exhilaration and excitement while safely nestled within the embrace of the holiday spirit. The thrill of the unknown, the anticipation of the next chilling twist, and the shared gasp and shudder amongst companions all contribute to the allure of these tales. Beyond the mere entertainment factor, 
Ghost stories also serve as a reminder of our mortality, prompting introspection and reflection. They challenge our perceptions of reality and the boundaries between the physical and spiritual realms, inviting us to consider the possibility of something beyond our ordinary understanding. The tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas has persisted through the ages, adapting to the changing cultural landscape while retaining its core essence. Today, ghost stories continue to captivate audiences, whether through classic literature, film adaptations or modern retellings, they provide a portal into the realm of the unknown, offering a unique blend of fear, fascination and festive cheer. As families gather around the fireplace or their television screens, the tradition continues to bring them together, fostering a sense of community and shared experiences that transcends generations. And in this episode, you're going to hear some truly spine-chilling real-life ghost stories that I've received from listeners, just like you. So settle down somewhere suitably dark, grab yourself a hot drink to ward off the winter chill, and let us begin. Our first story comes from Carol Scorer, who lives in John O'Groats in Scotland, which is famous for being located at Great Britain's most northeastern tip, but who grew up in Washington, Tyne and Weir, not too far from me, and somewhere that I personally know all too well as when I flew the nest and moved out of my parents' house, I bought myself a flat in Washington. Carol wrote to me about something chilling that occurred 47 years ago to her partner late one Friday night. I was born and raised in Harriton, or what was then Fatfield Council Houses, and at the time of this event was living at home with my parents in Pinewood Avenue. My mother's family had lived in the Fatfield area since the 1800s. My husband-to-be Tom was from Sunderland, and he was working at the Dunlop Tyre Factory on Weir Estate, and he used to stay with us when he was on the back shift. This event happened on a Friday night in early 1976, when the night shift ended at 11pm or midnight. The workers from Harriton area used to jump over the back gate which was next to Macro, and then either go over the bridge and through the estate, or follow the path down by the railway line. This is now the cycle path from Sunderland up to Consett and beyond. Tom used to work to and from work with his colleague Clive, but on this occasion Clive was held up, so Tom went on ahead. He followed his usual route, but then he heard footsteps behind him. Thinking it was Clive hurrying to catch him up, Tom stopped and waited. The sound of footsteps got closer, but there was no one there, and then they seemed to pass right through Tom standing on the path and he felt a chill run through him. Needless to say, Tom took off at full speed, and he was white as a sheet when he got in. On telling the story to my mam, she did not seem at all surprised, and she mentioned that in years gone by, before Washington Newtown, there was a crossing around where the factory now is, on a track that ran from Harriton to Portobello, and just over this crossing was a small wood or copse. Carol said that she could remember standing on the five-bar gate at the crossing as a small child, This was a very popular suicide spot back in the day. Clive told Tom on the following Monday that he'd gone through the village to get home, rather than going down the line on his own. I think that was the last time Tom ventured down that way after dark. We now live near John O'Groats, but as our daughter lives in Washington, we still get down to the area now and again. The next story is from Dorothy from the West Highlands of Scotland, who has sent not one, not two, but five spooky experiences that she has in store for us. Starting with one in New Hales House, which is a building that dates from around 1686. 
Friday Night Bravado made me email you. Or maybe it was the wine. I've had a few experiences now. I seem to have become a bit more sensitive in recent years, after dying to see a ghost all of my earlier life and not. The most recent was at New Hale's house. My daughter Kirsty booked us on a haunted house tour while I was down visiting her in Edinburgh for the weekend. We got the bus out to Musselburgh, had dinner and walked out to the place. It's a beautiful building. Anyway, the tour guides were amazing, no theatrics, totally down to earth, just telling the history and the paranormal stories. There was also two security people following us around, as on one tour the disconnected servant bells went off and the 20 odd guests on the tour ran off screaming in 20 different directions and it's a big house full of valuables. So yes, I was enjoying the stories and the vibe, not feeling particularly spooky, just enjoying it. But then we went in a room and my legs felt a bit wobbly. So I plonked myself on a chair and reviewed my food and drink intake over the day. It was not excessive by any stretch. We went on to the adjoining bedroom and the guide started telling us that a little girl called Dorothea sometimes tries to hold people's hands. I really don't remember anything else at all. All I could think was I was either going to faint or be sick. So I grabbed a security lady and said I had to get some fresh air. She got me to the door, Kirsty in tow, and I sat down on the doorstep sucking in that lovely fresh non-oppressive air. Then I was fine. We went back in, the tour was leaving the room, we tagged on the end and I was perfectly fine. Anyhow, I emailed them as I wanted to hear Dorothea's story given, as I thought, perhaps she'd made herself known to me, but not in a cute way. The woman who got back to me was one of the tour guides on the night, but it wasn't Dorothea affecting me. She told me that Dorothea died aged two and a half. Her mother was Margaret, who was also seen and makes her presence known. Margaret's husband, David, was the last Baronet Dalrymple, who were the people of the house. He had been a naval officer, he'd turned to the drink, and he was dishonourably discharged. Not long after he came home, Dorothea was born. But he went off to be madder on the drink. He gambled, cheated with many ladies, and after Dorothea died, he buggered off. He ended up living in London with an actress, totally abandoning his poor wife. The actress was called, yep, Dorothy, the same as me. Another experience occurred about 10 years ago. I was out for an early morning run. It was maybe March, around 6am, and it was an absolutely beautiful morning, but it was pitch black. I headed out. It was freezing. Up the hill by my house, I was thinking, I hate this. Then down the hill, I was thinking, this is the best. I'm loving life. There were no street lights, but the school near the bottom of the hill had outside lights 24-7. So I'm running down the hill, soaking in those endorphins, and as I look out towards the sea, I see a meteor shower. And as I'm just about at the school, I see something out the corner of my eye. It's a man. A very tall man. A very tall see-through man. What? Pardon? Stop drooling over the meteor shower and focus, Dorothy. I run right in front of him. We totally crossed paths. I remember looking over my shoulder at him. He was very serious looking and he was not aware of me. He was tall because he was fragmenting. He was in bits. He was coming apart and fading. By the time my brain accepted, my downhill momentum had stopped and I reversed. There was no sign of him. A friend suggested that it could have been the electricity in the air from the meteor shower that made him visible. 
I walked the same route an hour or two later to work, and there was an electric fence up for horses, one of those movable ribbon ones. He had walked straight through it when I'd seen him. My next experience was last year, when I heard my dead cat say hello. I absolutely know it was Sid. Then in the spring of this year, 2023, I was at the Glasgow Botanic Gardens during the day. I entered the Kibble Palace and walked into the sound of a party. I could hear conversation and clinking glasses. It lasted about 20 seconds. Then it ended, and there was nobody else there, just me. Finally, back in the late 70s or early 80s, my mum and I were watching a Hammer House of Horror film on our own in the house. Then the toilet flushed. Next up, we have our first poltergeist drop by for some eggnog and an after eight minute or two. I spoke with the delightful Emma from the Weird Wiltshire blog, as you'll have heard on last week's episode about Woodchester Mansion, as well as previous episodes about Stonehenge and the ancient Ramin. And I'm delighted to say that she's agreed to talk with me again. I asked her if she'd ever had a paranormal experience that she couldn't explain, and this is what she had to say. I'm delighted to say that we've got everybody's favourite poltergeist back on, Emma from the Weird Wiltshire blog, who you'll have heard as recently as last week, when uh, she and I were chatting all about Woodchester Mansion. Hiya, Emma. Hello. You can't get rid of me at the moment, can you? No, no. Welcome back. And I'm delighted to have you on for this Christmas spooktacular. The episode's all about listener stories. And you're not necessarily a listener, you're a guest. But I'd love to ask you if you've got a real ghost story that you can share with the listeners this Christmas time. Yeah, um, I do actually. And um, the reason when you um, first asked me if I had anything, this one sprang to mind is because of the timing of it. And it actually happened um, last Christmas, just before last Christmas. So there's a bit of a backstory. Now, all the listeners might know by now, I'm a bit of a sceptical believer. So I'm, I'm, I do believe that there's something out there there's strangeness there's spirits but I also don't believe all of it's true but this happened to me and I cannot explain it so um I went back end of when was it it was early December and I went up to I was up at Avebury one of my favorite places oh, and um I was mid I've written a series of blogs about there and I'd gone back up one um after afternoon taking the dogs with me to get some photos and visit the long barrow get photos up there and um I'd been there a couple of weeks before and failed to get the photos I needed because I'd gone with a friend and I was too busy talking so I went back and I picked up while I was first there with my friend I'd gone into one of the hippie shops and seen this leaflet for a spiritual medium and I just picked it up I'd look at it and I was just like oh that's interesting I wouldn't mind going to see her. She sounds quite good. And I always go with an open mind. I've seen people before. I've had my palm read. I've had tarot's read. I read tarot cards myself. Um, so I'm always open-minded about these things. And I had made this appointment to go and see her in mm -hmm. the afternoon after visiting the Long Barrow. And so first thing that happened, I went into the shop and it's, uh, there's lots of jewellery, candles, things like that. And I was looking around, I was browsing, um, just looking at the rings because I've been after, uh, I wear silver, um, silver rings. And I've been looking for a new ring for one of my fingers on my right hand for a while. But I didn't really see anything. 
and um, she came down. Her room was above this shop. She came down the stairs and she apologised to me. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm ever so breathless. I can't seem to catch my breath. As we went up the stairs and I thought, well, maybe she's coming down with COVID or something like that. But we went into the room and I was very careful with her to not give her any information about who I was or where I've come from. All she knew was my name was Emma. And she proceeded to do this reading, which actually really did blow me away. She came up with, she started describing this lady and she she described this lady that was these little gestures and she was saying she's struggling to breathe. She said, I see her with oxygen. Should she sat around this fire? Um, Should she always sits there in the same place? She said, do do you recognize this person? And I didn't at first because I was almost expecting my, I was hoping for my nan to come through. Hmm. What actually happened over the course of this, uh, this reading was that more and more details were coming through. And I didn't say, oh, that might be my grandma, but I started to suspect it as she described my grandma's last six six to eight weeks were in a nursing home, looking out of, she had this room with a view out of the window. And she said, this woman says it's okay what happened to her. She understands she quite liked it where she was. And my grandma died of emphysema because she was a heavy smoker all her life, which yeah. explained this sort of heavy, this breathing difficulty the woman had. Um, then she went on to say the last bit. She was saying things like, oh, she got me some slippers. She's she's saying she's showing me slippers. She's saying she always used to ask you to get them for her. And that's exactly what my grandma would say. Oh, Emma, go and get my slippers for me. And pop them in front of her and this thing she used to do she used to adjust adjust her dress around her neck and that was mm-hmm. something my grandma would always do and then the last thing the thing that convinced me that made me actually go okay this is weird is she's the woman said she's pointing at all these ornaments was was to somebody you know collect ornaments and again I was like well that was my nan really so she's pointing at dogs and I was like oh I don't know it doesn't sound like my nan wasn't thinking in my mind. And then she said, she's giving me a name. She's giving me a name. She's pointing at the dogs and she's telling me Elsa, Elsa. And that was my grandma's dog's name. She had one wow. dog and that was the name she gave me. And and then all the other points that sort of fitted in with it told me that was my grandma. And my grandma had some really good advice to me during this reading and, and the reading end. And I sort of left a really spooky day because, um, I've been up at the Long Barrow and had a weird experience. That's on one of the blogs, Walking the Paths of Our Ancestors, if anyone wants to read it. I didn't really, so it was a weird day. I went home, I told my partner about it um, and didn't really think much more of it. Um, Took the advice that my grandma had given this medium and relayed to me as as useful stuff. Um, And it was getting near Christmas. Anyway, two weeks passed and we'd all been out I think um, we'd been out shopping or something like that. And this was two or three days before Christmas. And we'd come back into our house. We've got quite a small house. So I do try and keep it tidy because it can very quickly with kids and animals turn to absolute chaos. Um, And I always keep the work surfaces in the kitchen clean. And my partner went into the kitchen and I cleaned up before we went out. And he went, what's this ring? 
and he picked up this he went what's this ring here on the side and there on the kitchen surface not near anything else was this silver ring I looked at it I was like I have no idea and and we said to her my daughter Annie I was like Annie is this short no what no I've never seen it and nobody no one in the house had ever seen this ring so I picked it up and I looked at it and it was really pretty silver ring abalone inlay exactly the sort of thing that I would like and I just had a look at it popped it on my middle ring finger and it fitted perfectly so I was like that's so weird my partner is not a believer of anything at all we asked I, we were all really miffed about where this thing had come from I messaged and spoke to anyone that possibly could have been in our house. No one had been in our house. None of my family had recognised this ring. None of my friends that might have been around recognised this ring. We still do not know to this day where this ring has come from and just turned up on the work surface. And all I can think is that that day when I went up to Avebury and saw that medium, my grandma was already there watching me, looking for silver rings in that shop, and she just decided to send me a little Christmas present. And I still wear that ring to this day, one year on. <laughs> so anyone that's got any ideas of how this thing's supported into our house and where it's come from, I'm more than open to them because it still freaks my partner out now. He's like, he, he doesn't really believe, but he's like, he cannot explain that. Um, and we do have other strange things going on. We get wafts of cigarette smoke in the house at times in fact caught a smell of it at the weekend none of us smoke just you'll get it and he he's smelt it as well you just walk into a room and you'll smell the cigarette smoke um and it's gone um i i don't know is that my grandma's still hanging around but this ring one is a real mystery can you help explain it got any ideas me yeah no <laughs> I mean, it's, it's <laughs> what, what, how could it get there? I don't know. I, don't I mean, know. it sounds as though a ghost shoplifted and buy and put it on your kitchen in your kitchen. I'd like to think so. I think it was a little Christmas present. But the, the weird thing is, I actually wrote about it this year because it was on the back end of a couple of other people telling me apporting stories of things appearing in their house and skeptics as well. One of them is Michelle, who I'm friends with on Twitter and I've met up in London for one of the Uncanny shows. And you would never met, she's a neuroscientist. You won't meet a stronger sceptic and she's got reporting no. stories that she just cannot explain. No. Things that appear when they shouldn't appear and nobody knows where they've come from. Owen, he's another one with several stories. Things that go missing and reappear to him all the time another skeptic can't explain them so i don't know i'd like to think it was my grandma sending me a little christmas present and um but i'll leave that one for the listeners to decide yeah let them make their own mind up but it's a brilliant story <laughs> and how did you feel when the penny dropped that this psychic or medium had picked up uh, on the dog's name because there's no way i mean it's it's not easily guessable no, it's not. I mean, if she'd have gone, oh, unusual sort of dog name, then yeah. maybe. Rover. Um, yeah, exactly. But 
my grandma only had one dog and this was when we were kids and and this dog was a pain it was really important to her but um I'd like to think yeah I don't know the other the other details were like well yeah that was something maybe yeah. she could have come up with that but so actually when when she said that the dog's name and then when you look at the whole picture of my grandma and her little gestures and my see my I'm come from quite a working class family. My grandparents are from Essex. And one of the things, the bits of advice she gave, and she said it in this accent, she went, You gotta stand up for yourself more, girl. And that's exactly the sort of thing my grandma would have said to me. <laughs> and that's exactly one of the reasons I was there, is like I needed some life advice. And that's something I've been trying to put into action this last year. So grandma, if you're listening, I'm trying. Not doing a great job, but <laughs> but yeah, it's nice. It's a nice thought, isn't it, to think that someone is out there looking out for you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. What a lovely story, and thank you for sharing it with uh, with the listeners this Christmas time. If anybody wants to read the blog that you mentioned before, or get in touch with yourself, where mm. can people find you? I mean, so I'll, put all, I'll put the links in the I'll put the links in the podcast episode description as well, but. Just for anybody yeah, who wants to do it right now while they're listening. So it's um, weird-wiltshire.co.uk. And if you're over on Twitter or X, whatever we want to call it, it's a handle um, weird with a W, a capital W, Wilts with a capital W again, and blog with a capital B. So you'll find me over on there. And if you're looking for what I try and do is a break from the norm at Christmas, I try and write a little fictional Christmas ghost story. So head on over there if you want to read one of those, because I'm hopefully I'll have it posted by the time listeners get there. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us again. And I'm sure that uh, we'll talk again in 2024. Yeah, thank you, Rob. And obviously, we're going to be going to Woodchester Mansion, uh, something I will yeah. definitely regret saying. Yeah, as discussed, as discussed just one week ago <laughs> on this podcast. Exactly. Everybody heard it. You know, backing out of it now. But uh, have a wonderful yeah. Christmas and I'll catch you. Uh, I'll catch you the other side of the new year. Yeah. Yeah. You too. And happy Christmas right. to all of the listeners. You can check out Emma's blog over at weird-wiltshire.co.uk. We return to the northeast of England for the next story, as Karen from Bedlinton in Northumberland wrote to me about a potential time slip that she experienced while shopping in the Metro Centre, which, for anybody who's not heard of the Metro Centre, is the second largest shopping centre in the UK, and it's situated in Gateshead, Tyne and Weir. Karen wrote, This happened a few years ago while in the Metro Centre of all places. I'd just gone in to do a little bit of shopping for a birthday which was coming up. I was standing next to where WH Smiths used to be, and I don't know what happened, but the Metro Centre had gone, and I was standing in a crowded ballroom. There were soldiers standing in knee-high boots, breeches, and short jackets. There were women in ball gowns, and I could feel that I had one on too. I touched my clothing, and I could feel the material. I could feel my hair was long, and arranged around my head together with what felt like a headband or something similar. I could smell perfume, and sweat. It was overpowering. It was so bizarre, I got a shock, but then I was back in the metro centre surrounded by shoppers rushing around, and I wondered what the heck had just happened. I can still feel it to this day, and I don't think I'll ever be able to explain it. Staying in the northeast of England, Craig, from Chesterley Street in Durham, 
wrote to me about a series of premonitions of deaths that he has had, that have sadly come true. Over the past 23 years, I have had several premonitions, all of which have come to reality. Four of these I would hand on heart use the word, unfortunately. My earliest premonition, which is my first premonition from what my mum has told me, came from when I was only 10 years old. It was 1992, and I was staying, as I would usually do on a Friday night, at my nana and grandad's house in a beautiful village in County Durham called Sedgefield, a place where the previous Prime Minister named Tony Blair was an MP for. It was like any other evening. I was being told to get my pyjamas on and brush my teeth and get ready and settle for bed. After doing so, I got the colouring book and pens out and thought I would colour in before I went to bed. As I was sat there at the dining table, I had a feeling that went through my body like a freight train that my nana would not live past 80. At only 10 years old, I didn't know what that meant. I asked my nana, How old are you, nana? To which she replied, I'm 66, son, why? I replied with an answer to shrug it off as if I was just being inquisitive, but that stayed with me right until my adult life because my nana was everything to me. I would even go to her house from school on lunchtimes to spend time with her. I didn't speak of this until I was about 18 in the year 2000, at which point I said to my mum that I am worried for when my nana turns 80. I got a response that any parent would give, and I was told to stop worrying, as nana is fine. 2006 came, and my nana celebrated turning 80 at her favourite pub in Sedgefield, the Dun Cow. She enjoyed all her family being there and eating her favourite roast potatoes that the Duncow is famous for. In late August 2006, my nana started to feel unwell and went to the doctor. After some tests, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and started treatment. On the 6th of September 2006, my nana passed away at the age of 80, and I was devastated. But did I already see this coming? The second of these four premonitions came when I was 14 in 1996. We were living in a small village in County Durham called Trimden Village. This is the village where the aforementioned Prime Minister Tony Blair grew up. It was like any other day. It was the midst of summer and I remember it being a warm summer's day because the old couple who lived next door had their grandchildren who would come and stay in the summer school holidays and we would all play together. It was the highlight of our school holidays. The old couple were called Alice and Bob but this isn't their real name. I've changed their names to protect their family and their identity. I was out playing football in the street and I just stopped. As internally, I heard the words, Bob hasn't got long left. At 14 years old, I didn't think any more of it and I carried on playing football with my brother and my friends. It wasn't until we were shouted in by my mam for tea at around five o'clock that I said to my mam, Mam, Bob hasn't got long left, you know, and he'll probably die today. My mother looked shocked. The blood drained from her face and she asked me what I was playing at, as that was not funny. Again, at 14, I was not aware that Bob was in hospital and gravely ill. But just as the premonition said, Bob passed away that night. And when Alice told my mum the very next day, my mum was in shock. The third premonition I had concerned my next door neighbour Alice, who was now on her own since the passing of Bob. I stepped up a bit after Bob died, as Alice couldn't do a lot on her own. I helped go to the shops for her, and I cut her grass. We became good friends, and I saw her as another grandmother. It was 1999, and I was 17, and Alice's health started to decline. 
I noticed this more the more jobs that I was doing for her in my spare time, and I told my mum of my concerns. Over the next few months, Alice was in and out of hospital, and she would always bounce back, and she would joke with me that she would live to over a hundred, and I would also hope so, but I always had this feeling that she wouldn't, and that upset me a great deal. It was around the end of October, and I remember this as it was Halloween, and again I had the experience of that feeling that Alice won't see the millennium. This time I was 17 and a bit more wary of things, as I knew this was a message or a warning, so I went into the house and told my mam. Her reaction again was full of shock, but this time she responded by sitting me down and telling me to stop being daft. As parents do when they know it's quite serious, but don't want to alarm you. Surely enough, Alice died in the December of 1999, and didn't see the impending once-in-our-lifetime millennium celebrations. I do come from a spiritual family, as my mum would always believe in the spirit world, and that our loved ones were always around to protect us and reach out to us. Or as you have talked about on previous episodes, was it Bob reaching out to me before he passed on, to tell me in order to pass on his message? And was it Bob again reaching out to me to tell me that it was Alice's time, and that he would look after her in the spirit world? I personally take warmth that this is the case, and that they are now back together, reunited. After the passing of Alice, my mum asked me not to tell her of any more premonitions because she just couldn't handle it anymore. My fourth premonition came when I was at work in 2014, and this one changed my life. I have worked in IT for most of my adult life, from successfully completing my IT apprenticeship in 2014 to now being quite high up in a managed IT services for a reputable IT company. But in early 2014, I fancied a break from IT. And it was at this point that my brother told me of an entry-level position for a trainee asbestos surveyor. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. He said the only drawback was that I would have to report to him and learn from him. Although my brother is four years younger than me, he was a very successful, fully qualified asbestos surveyor and a licensed asbestos remover. Although I have always had the upper hand as the big brother grown up, I was very keen to watch him work and learn his trade. And the more I worked with him, the more proud I became of the man that he is and seeing how professional he is with his trade. We were assigned to a college in Leeds that was going to be converted into apartments, and our job was to survey the parts of the college that were to be demolished for any asbestos to be removed before the demolition. We were brothers, and we were known for our daft messing about, and as the job was a demolition job, we were allowed to, within reason, and with the correct asbestos standard PPE protection, to look for asbestos without the worry of damage, because the building was going to be demolished anyway. We would swing from wires and generally lark about, but as we were larking about, and this was around July of 2014, as it was red hot in our white FBI-like asbestos protection suits. I had one of these sobering premonitions about my beloved mam. Our mam. I had this feeling that mam wasn't going to live a very long life, and that hit me like a bullet, as if I had been shot, because I knew this was going to become reality. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before, 
Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. I said to my brother, Do you think man will live to an old age? And he said, Oh, Craig, do shut up. You are so morbid. Now my brother knew nothing about these premonitions as he doesn't really believe in this. Or maybe he doesn't know how to process the idea of things like that. I never spoke about it any further to anyone, and I certainly didn't speak of it to my mam. How could I tell her that? Plus, she had previously told me to not tell her if I had any more. I successfully managed to bury it in the back of my mind, and managed to forget about it. That was until later that year, in October of 2014, me and my brother were in an old art classroom where he was taking samples for investigation and I had stopped for a break. I picked my mobile phone out from my pocket and as I always would, I gave my mum a quick call to see how her day was. But on this occasion she didn't answer, which didn't alarm me at first as I thought she might have been making a cup of tea or she popped out and she would always call me back. An hour went by and then another one and then another one so I called my sister and there was no answer from her either, and she didn't call me back. So I called them both again and still no answer. At that point my heart sank, and the room that I was standing in became very large indeed. My brother and I were both very worried. We finally got a call from my sister, who told me that man was in hospital as she'd lost the use of one of her legs and she was getting some rest. I felt sick. On Saturday the 25th of October 2014, she was booked in to have an MRI scan. We were then all put into a room on the evening of the same day, and we were told that it was lung cancer, and that it spread to her spine and bones, which made sense in her losing the function of one leg due to the tumour on her spine blocking the signals from her brain. My mum started radiotherapy straight away, and had a biopsy the following Friday the 31st of October 2014, we were told we would get the results of the type of cancer within a week or so. On Monday the 3rd of November, my mum deteriorated quickly, and she was in and out of consciousness, but she was still talking to us when she could, and also having a right old conversation with someone else saying things like, yes, I know, I won't be long, and look, just wait. And she also said the words, ma'am, just wait, I won't be long. As you can imagine, we were all dumbfounded, and wondered if this was solid evidence that my man was in between this earth and the next step into where we go when we pass. Were we seeing this right in front of our own eyes? My man passed away peacefully with us all by her side on Tuesday the 4th of November, without ever getting the results of her biopsy. She did open her eyes once before she passed, when my brother was trying to fix the blind on the window and it fell off, so even just before she passed she was still telling us off. As I thought back to my previous premonition, was it my nana giving me a message when I was in the old art classroom telling me my mam's life was coming to a natural end, and that she would be coming for her, and that she would be looked after in the spirit world? 
It is hard to not believe this, especially with the conversation my mum was having the day before she passed. And she said the words, Mam, just wait, I won't be long. I take comfort that we are greeted by our loved ones when this is our time to leave this earth and move on. Because I miss my mum and my nana and the thought of them coming to greet me when my time comes gives me a great deal of comfort. Our next poll to guest is Rob Davies from the Dead Air YouTube channel. At some point over this summer, Reeves from the excellent Paratalk podcast that both Rob and I have appeared on made me aware of an EVP recorded by Rob sometime in 2009 or 2010. He said that he'd heard it and that it was absolutely chilling. I reached out to Rob, who I've known for a number of years now, but met in person for the first time back in August of this year, 2023, for an investigation at the Bowes Railway Museum that you may have heard in a trilogy of episodes in the run-up to Halloween. I asked Rob about the origins of the recording, and not only could I hear it, but could I share it with the listeners on this very special episode of the podcast. Rob said yes. I will now play our conversation for you, followed by the absolutely staggering recording that he captured on an investigation at a location called the Biscuit Factory, right here in the northeast of England, many years ago. Be warned, what you will hear is absolutely horrifying. I'm so pleased to be joined by Rob Davies, who does the Dead Air YouTube channel. Hi Rob, how's it going? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me on, by the way. No, no, no problem. I mean, anybody who listens to the podcast will have heard your dulcet tones on the Bose Railway trilogy of episodes that put out at the back end of the summer. And uh, I wanted to get you on because I I was made aware of a recording that had been made when you did an investigation. And now I've heard it. I'd love to hear the story behind it. And then I will play this recording for the listeners as a bit of a Christmas treat. But word to the wise, like I wouldn't listen to it if you're easily disturbed because it's a little bit... um, I can't think of a better word than terrifying. But before we get into that, who are you? Tell anybody listening who you are and what you do. So I've been involved in the paranormal scene in the northeast of England for uh, quite a lot, since about 2009, 2008, 2009. So we started off as a radio show, doing it as a phone-in, trying to get people to ring up and share their stories. And then every month we'd go and do a live radio ghost hunt somewhere in the northeast. Um, that kind of evolved into what we're doing now, which is YouTube. So mm-hmm. going out there, recording video, finding locations, investigating it, and bringing the viewer along. That's why it's kind of more of a point of view type of paranormal investigation. So you kind of see what we see, or night vision, so you can, what we don't see. But it's kind of just more focusing on the history of places, yeah. Finding locations that have got an interesting backstory, hauntings that are um, certainly a place where paranormal activity is is getting report is getting reported that we can go in there, try and capture it, trying to document it, and hopefully trying to capture that bit of evidence that you know one day could be used by someone to try and suggest that there is something going on on the other side. Yeah, and I mean, I've watched, I've watched your videos, and I was just saying to you there before I pressed record, seeing you alone in a place like Chillingham Castle or or some of the other places, and you, your videos take you all over the world, but seeing you alone somewhere like Chillingham Castle, you just talking to the camera on your own, braver man than me. You know, it's funny because 
I know you you've done a lot of investigations yourself, and hmm. there'll be other people out there that have done sort of similar things. And you don't think about it when you're doing it because I think after a while, because I can remember the first ones I ever went on, I was nervous, and you kind of you get a bit on edge about stuff, and especially when you go into rooms on your own, you, you get a bit nervous. But then I think you just get so used to it that you don't even think about it anymore. And I think Alan Robson was the one who was the one who summed it up best, and he said. So he said that, you know, I've been on a few investigations with him in the past couple of years. And he said that you just become hardened to it. Like yeah. it's it's one of those things where you do it for so long and then you just you kind of get so used to it that you don't get that sort of nervousness or that sort of tense feeling before you go in. So I kind of get it and it's to the point where people have started mentioning it now, like yourself there and yeah. other people have said, but you're by yourself and you kind of think, Yeah. I kind of get what you mean now, but when you're going out and recording it, you don't think like that. You're so used to just, right, I've got to go and get some, um, a couple of hours worth of video from this place and then I'm going to go and get some from that place. And it's it's kind of like you just know what you've got to do and you go and do it. Um, there's no, I don't know. Then again, I also convince myself before I start that I'm, there's no such thing because I think, if you go in there with the mindset that there's a an entity in that room with you, you wouldn't go in that room. Nobody would. No, if you know no, I, mean. I, to- so, I to- totally get that. I mean, I've been to Chillingham. Convince just, yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Chillingham a couple of times and with small groups. And um, I think if you tell yourself there's something in there, you're right. The last place yeah. you want to be is in there. But this yeah. um, investigation that you were on when you happened to capture this unbelievable audio... What's what's the backstory there? Where were you? So this was right back at the start of radio. So this is either this is like the winter of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, sometime in that sort of few weeks. Hmm. So it was kind of like a pilot few weeks of going out recording a paranormal show. It was nothing like what we turned it into in the end. But this was before um other co-presenters came on board. It was myself and I was just going to go out and find four locations and put together four radio shows that were going to run over four weeks, all pre-recorded. That was the sort of um, idea behind it. So I had the locations planned. Alex Beamish Hall was one of them. Um, I think we had a pub in Sunderland. There was a few of them like that. And one of those was the Biscuit Factory in Newcastle. I'd been tipped off about it because at the time the radio studios were... Um, pretty much over the road from there um, and someone had said you've got to get into the biscuit factory because there's, there's stories in there people are saying that stuff happens in there so I contacted them told them what it was about and I said look I'm going to bring a few listeners along it was three or four of them, the women mates at the time yeah. but you pretend they're listeners and we had access to the place so this building itself it's an, it's an art gallery it's got a restaurant in it. Um, we were given access to the bottom areas of it. So that's like the basement. Um, so down there, you've got lots of rooms that people use as art studios. So artists can go in, work on projects. You know, they've got, they've got access to go in there. So we had a base room. That's where we set up all our equipment. And I decided to bring along with me a dictaphone. It was a little tape recorder. Um, yeah. Once you put the little mini tapes in and record, mm-hmm. my sister had given it to me because she'd been off to university and she'd used this 
to record lectures on. So bought some blank tapes, put the tape in, and I left it in the base room. So it was like, to, to best describe this layout, it's kind of like four long corridors in a square. So if mm-hmm. you walk around them, you, you'll get back to the start again. Okay. But they each had like doors on, so you could close the door and sort of like put a different person in each segment of the corridor. And I left this in the base room in one of the corners. So it's like the, you know, I'd say probably the south east corner of the building. Um, so it was like a tea room type thing. It was like a sink, kettle, things like that. And I left this tape recorder there and I just thought, well, I'm going to press it and leave it to record and see if anything happens. Yeah. And we went off with our microphone. Nothing as professional as what we later turn into, but we were kind of like, you know, some um, young early 20-year-olds on a ghost hunt. We were a bit excited and you could hear us on the tape. Yeah. You can hear us walking away. You can hear my friend, Craig, um, even making a fun about walking away from the tape recorder. And then you kind of hear us just disappear into the into the building. And then throughout the night, I'd obviously come back. I'd collected this tape recorder, stopped it, set it up to record something else. Again, stopped it. And back then, I was totally like inexperienced with all of this. So my main focus was to put together the radio show. So after the night had finished, I'd just gone and edited all the audio I'd got on the main microphone, got all the interviews, put them together, edited some music into it, put the jingles in for the radio station, and then bang, that was it. I was kind of just like, get it out of the way, do it really quick. And I'd never even once thought to go and listen to this tape, not once. And then, so that was 2009, 2010 a few years later i got this tip this tip recorder out of the cupboard it's literally been in the cupboard it was covered in dust and i thought this would be handy for using on ghost hunts again so i started playing it and listening back and i remembered it so i thought oh this was the this is the biscuit factory because i remember there's craig and there's Catherine. we were all there there's a it's a group and I was, for novelty reason, I'd just listen to it, just listening back, because I'd totally forgotten this even existed. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you hear me back on the tape, pressing stop, and then it sort of starts recording something else, which is what you hear on this audio, which is something breathing, I would say, and then a scream, like a loud, yeah. high-pitched scream. And the first thing I thought was, what on earth was that? So I straight away messaged all the other people that were there that night in the group chat, and I said, have you heard this? And I think they thought it was just a joke as well. Um, I showed uh, Chris, my co-presenter, at at the time we were doing the radio show a few years later, and he was impressed by it. But I said, we can't put that on the radio because it sounds ridiculous. And even now, like I listen to that now, and it's kind of, you know... When you when you in the paranormal industry, you end up debunking a lot of other people's evidence, and you come that's fake, that's that's a load of rubbish. So I put myself into that position, and I think, well, if someone sent me this, mm-hmm. I would say this is fake, this is a load of rubbish, because it just sounds far fetched. It sounds like something's, but I know that nobody's had that tape. It's been in my possession. Nobody's touched it. Yeah, it's just been left in a drawer in a cupboard somewhere for three or four years between when I found it and when it was recorded. 
if somebody had done that on the night, you would have heard it because it screams. Yeah. Nobody could have screamed in that building and not been heard. If you know what I mean, someone would have heard someone messing around with the tape. It's not recorded directly over the top of us, but it's recorded in between when I stopped it and when I set it off to record the next bit of recording on that night. Yeah. yeah. So then you think, well, maybe something had recorded it on that night in that sort of time time period type thing. Um, because certainly if that had been left in the house and somebody had got their hands on it to go and, and do it, you know, they would have to rewind it and find the space or whatever. But it was just so weird. I can't explain it. So I totally just didn't want to think about it. I thought, I can't show anyone that. can't go to the, the newspapers about it. can't send it to anyone and say, hey, look what I've got. Because they'll just think it's a lot of rubbish. They'll just think it's a, someone being daft and faking something. So I just kept quiet about it. And I never, ever showed anyone it until recently. And then I was watching an episode of, um, was it, I think it was Paranormal Court on Camera or one of those TV shows on, yeah. on one of the films. Yeah, yeah, another ones. one, Jimmy. And some guy was getting these weird voice messages on his phone. He lives in, in Canada. And one of the, apparently a haunted house, and he was getting these messages. And when you played them, it was almost identical to that, almost identical to the heavy breathing, the scream. It was it was the same thing, and I couldn't believe it. And that's when I, I messaged a friend of ours. I said, have you heard this? Expecting him to laugh. Yeah. And obviously, you know, he, he took it seriously. But I said, look, I still think it's, I even now, even though I've got it in my possession, I still think it's a load of rubbish. I can't get my head around how this has happened. Yeah, and that's how that's... I found out about it because you sent a message, and then I got told yes. by our friend, as you mentioned. Yeah, and he was impressed enough to tell me, which is why I reached out to you and said, "Look, yes. I want to, I want to hear it. What's the, what is it?" Embarrassment, though, that you think that if I play that to someone, they're going to laugh at it. That's why oh. I've never really gone public with it. I heard it, and I'll let the listeners make their own mind up. We're gonna, I'm gonna play it for them yeah. in a in a moment. But that final noise, I don't even think I could make that noise if I tried to. It's yeah, chilled me to the bone when I heard it. And I've heard, I've been on many many investigations, and I've heard a lot of weird things, but I don't know what to make of it. It's uh, it's absolutely terrifying. So I'll, I'll play it now. And then we'll come back and you can tell people where they can find you. We've just heard the audio and um, I'd love for anybody to get in touch to say what they made of it and they can contact you directly. And how can they do that? How can people find your YouTube channel? How yep. can people get in touch with you, Rob? But on YouTube, uh, Dead Air TV. So it's Dead Air uh, and TV, all one word. Um, and on Instagram as well, 
really use Instagram for posting the pictures from the paranormal nights. That's just uh, dead air official on there. Perfect. And I'll put all of the links in the podcast episode description. And I can't stress enough. I mean, the what you put together is so professional. Like it's when I sit down and watch your videos, it's like watching a very high quality paranormal TV show. And the way it's done, I, no, no, I'm, I'm, I mean it. I'm not just, I'm not just saying it because I'm talking to you. It's so well put together, and the history you go into, and the fact that we can see what you're saying, and you're talking over the top of it. I think it's incredibly engaging, and I'd, I'd encourage anybody to go and check it out. But thank you so much for your time, Rob. You're an absolute star, and no doubt we'll end up doing something together again. I'd love to think, and then the listeners can Definitely. hear from you again. Definitely. Thanks for having me on, Rob. You can find Rob's brilliant YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at TV. Or if, like me, you use the YouTube app, then just search Dead Air TV. Next up is Barney, who sent me a very detailed account of an encounter that he had with a phantom miner that may well have saved his life. Barney wrote, The following is a brief account of a series of events that took many years to piece together. But first... A little about me and my history. I grew up and still reside in a Warwickshire village. In the village itself stood a late Victorian library, now sadly replaced with a new building. I would often visit it in order to borrow books based on fishing, a subject that a friend and I were desperately trying to self-educate. On one particular occasion I saw a book set upon the returns desk. I cannot recall its exact title, however it was along the lines of Haunted Warwickshire. Along with this, and yet another selection of angling books I set off home on my bike. The book relayed stories of several locations familiar to me, and of course, sparked a keen interest. But there was little I could do other than read the various titles of this genre until I passed my driving test. Then the action began. Very quickly I figured that many of the authors had merely rewritten previous published accounts, and the essence of the facts became lost. This was apparent having spoken to several people who claimed to have experienced strange things. Over a period of time, many incidents occurred that I have experienced and could not account for. Based on the fact that not many people experienced anything, I safely assumed that I had an overactive mind. I have two other passions, photography and caving, which would later provide an avenue of progression. Very few people take the time to explore abandoned Victorian mines. They are wet, muddy, and in parts very unstable. Those that do, tend to turn to locations with easy access. This very quickly became rather tedious for myself and two close Welsh friends, Di and Sai, so we set about upping the game. For many years we have studied Victorian mapping and aerial images, looking for slight scarring on the ground in the areas where we know of mineral deposits. Following any suspected workings being located, we will take initial equipment such as SRT, which is a complex rope access method, wetsuits and digging bars and spades, as generally any access has often collapsed. On occasions it will take hours to walk to the site of interest, and this is very disheartening should it prove fruitless. One project we set about was based in a popular mine with very easy access, a mere 45 minute walk up a hill. The place is huge yet the trodden path through the tunnels is a three-hour circular route. Writings on a website forum suggested that folk did not want to get lost, so explored no further than the known route. 
We are in contact with an ageing author and historian who had a copy of the old mine plans. The deal was, with this and other locations, that we survey and photograph any workings absent from the maps in return for a copy. Therefore he could amend them accordingly. Documents only exist for workings at closed post-1873-ish. Prior to this there was no statute requiring submission of abandonment plans. Following several discussions, disputes etc, a plan was hatched as to what was the most likely route to the far reaches. It was very obvious that a lot of rope work would be required, which in turn calls for the appropriate equipment such as hammer drills, thus making our rope bags particularly heavy. Off we went, making sure nobody was around when we entered, and began our initial climb taking us immediately off the main route. The first rope was installed and we descended 30 metres. The next obstacle was a very smooth and wide cleavage of rock with issue and water. My keen eye spotted the opportunity to slide down the lengthy plane, so I dropped my rope bag down with the intention of following it. I assumed the position, and I was met with a strong smell of pipe tobacco. Thinking nothing of it, I went off with a speedy yet semi-successful landing. Sai and I installed a rope to aid our later escape, and they followed my lead. Several rope pitches later, we were met with a major obstacle that was not as expected. Following a brief look for an alternative route, we had no options. Crossing a 15 metre chamber with an angled roof and 60 metre drop, the water level was going to be harsh. Pitching a 60 metre rope was not an option. This would require swimming across, then a 60 metre free climb to return to the level required. We do take some risks, but this would be certain death. A plan was conceived to rig and bolt a line across the roof, so we would be free hanging. Installing said line was going to be a very time consuming process. Unfortunately for Sai, he chose the wrong time to answer a call of nature, and in his absence Dai and I volunteered him to begin bolting the roof and laying the rope. Sai gathered his equipment and pitched himself up to begin. Dai and I sat back and munched on chocolate. As Sai's feet left the ground I sensed once again the tobacco smell. Immediately Sai made comment, who's smoking? I replied, nobody a clown, get on with your work. Dai remained silent throughout. After several hours of hard graft by Sai, the route was completed. This was rather a nerve-wracking experience, crossing at such height, trusting our equipment to do its job. We made good progress, slowed by the installation of ropes etc. However, it had taken 12 hours to get this far. Considering we had a lot of ascending to complete the route back out, we opted to return a few days later refreshed and less fatigued. We emerged at the surface well past midnight and we were met by a Welsh sky dotted with millions of stars, thanks to a lack of light pollution. The first half of our walk downhill to our cars was a brief discussion about our progress so far. We established that with more equipment, we should be able to negotiate anything that the manga throwed us. Following a moment of silence, Sai raised a concern. What on earth was that tobacco smell? We continued to debate. Conclusively, we knew that nobody else was there, and nobody else had been there because the only footprints, which we had carefully avoided, were those of hobnail boots, the preferred footwear of the Victorian miner. We had enough experience between us to know the smells of rotten wood and other aromas that permeate abandoned mines. I made mention to the others that it was the second time I had smelled it. Sai and I stated that they did not smell anything at the slide. Days passed and we returned, having reinstalled the first rope which was removed to prevent any other explorers finding it and giving the game away. 
we quickly progressed down the ropes we'd left in place. Having arrived at the slide, we searched for the source of the tobacco smell, to no avail. Once again I set up to go first. Upon launch, the smell hit me once again. I chose to shout "Wee!" as I descended rapidly rather than make mention. I wanted to see if any of the other guys experienced it. It came as no surprise that Sai quite loudly exclaimed, There it is again, that smell. But once again, Dai said nothing. We continued onwards, making another good day's progress. Ultimately in the coming months we reached the far end of the mine and made many pleasing discoveries. We have not been to this point again, as it's a 48 hour excursion. However, the subject of the tobacco smell repeatedly became the focus of discussion between the three of us. A conclusion was never reached, other than there is something exclusive to this particular place that causes a smell similar to tobacco. A couple of years later the three of us bumped into a guy we all knew. He was local, with good experience. We will refer to him as M. He saw the equipment in our cars and asked where we were off to. Naturally we lied. We are a secretive trusted trio. One of us asked him what his chosen venue was for this evening and he replied, I'm off to a mine. Something weird happened there last week. I want to go and see if it happens again. Of course, he was talking about the mine where we had the tobacco incidents. I asked what the reference to weird was. He explained that on his last visit he had drifted off the main route and headed through a very ropey area that has suffered many collapses over the years. We knew exactly where he meant. This particular tunnel has a confusing three-way junction that is semi-blind on the outward journey, yet returning, it is very easy to take the incorrect route. He was on his own, and having passed the junction and via some other chambers, he had a very strong feeling that he did not recognise where he was. He was lost. But suddenly, he could smell pipe tobacco that drew his attention. In a similar fashion to us a couple of years earlier, he set about trying to locate the source of the smell. The aroma gained and lost strength, causing him to wander around. After 30 minutes or so of following the smell, it had led him back to the junction and confirmed his safe return. We wished M well, and we headed off in our respected directions. Di and I were in my car following Sai, and after around 10 minutes of disturbing the Welsh countryside with the delicate sounds of Judas Priest, my thought process came to a conclusion. I muted the tunes and asked Di his thoughts on the story we'd heard from M. Di replied, I just don't know mate, it's strange that he mentions the same tobacco smell. I made a bold statement, I said that I think I have the case wrapped up, and we both agreed to wait until we arrived at the location in order to discuss this with Sai. When we got there, we made tea, and we had some snacks, we waited for the cover of darkness. I brought the conversation around to the tobacco incident, and having referred to M's account, we were all agreed that it had an element of truth about it based on our experiences, and I offered an explanation having spotted a pattern. I detailed the scenarios where the aroma appeared and exposed the link that it only happens when we were about to do something with a degree of danger or risk. In M's case he was effectively lost, yet the aroma led him to safety. Di made it very clear that he does not believe in this sort of thing, and in a moment of honesty admitted that it scares him. Regardless, in order to confirm or negate my theory, we should set up a series of scenarios. The danger element was not worth experimenting with, therefore we opted for using human guinea pigs, however they would never know this. 
Many people who are non-explorers are fascinated by the photos that Sai and I have shown them, so willing volunteers would not be a problem. The first person I invited was a girl, who we'll call Elle. She was very enthusiastic and very excited about her evening out. Dai Sai and I set off underground with Elle in tow. We climbed down the loose rock to the floor below and into a huge chamber. At this point, as previously planned with Dai and Sai, we instructed Elle to sit in this chamber. She agreed no problem, completely oblivious to what we were doing. We had made the excuse that we needed to drop down into a very tight, steeply angled tunnel in order to check the water levels before continuing on. After 20 minutes or so, we returned. Elle made comment that she was surprised that one of us smoked, having not seen any of us smoking in the last few hours. We told her that none of us did. She explained that soon after we left, she'd smelled smoke, but it wasn't like a normal cigarette. I closed this off by pointing out that there were many weird sounds and smells underground and not to worry. We have conducted this experiment on three or four occasions since, all with the same satisfactory result. Seemingly my theory was starting to firm up. For the next few years we were engrossed in more projects. Equally, we did not need to return to the tobacco mine. However, following a long day, Dai and I returned to his house, and there was a parcel on his doorstep. Dai was very excited. It was a storm lamp that he'd been waiting for. He was rather eager to try it out. And the evening weather forecast confirmed the ideal opportunity. So we set off to the chosen test facility, the tobacco mine. The weather was ridiculous. It was heavy rain and it was blowing a gale. Ideal for testing a storm lamp. We arrived after dark. Dai filled the lamp with paraffin and lit the wick. It glowed beautifully in the pitch blackness that remote Wales offers. There was enough light offered to guide our way. Upon arriving at the entry point, we both agreed that it was well worth the ridiculous amount of money he paid for it. It performed seamlessly, and despite the storm, it never faltered once. Our plan was to follow the round-trip route, but divert off to a collapsed area about four floors down. We arrived at this point and conquered the collapse. Now then, this particular collapse is about 10 metres long where the roof of the tunnel fell, thus blocking the route, but leaving a void in the roof. Following the forcing of a few rocks, a tight way on was created. Up and over we clambered. The void in the roof created about 8 feet of airspace. However, there was a very ropey fractured roof of triangular shape on each side, measuring around 3 metres hanging from the ceiling. This needed to be skirted tightly against the side wall, as the merest movement would cause gravity to take over. Having successfully negotiated the rock, we repeated the process to escape the void and returned to the normal tunnel. We returned to this point about an hour or so on our return journey. I was looking at the blockage and could see a gap on the tunnel floor. I suggested to Dai that if he placed his headlamp on the floor from the other side, I might be able to see a tight crawling space route under the collapse. Dai set off, and after a few minutes I could see his light. I stood up and shouted to him, yes, I see it. I will give it a go. I could see the faint orange glow from his storm lamp coming through the void. He had hung it high up on one of the many old rusty compressor pipe hooks attached to the tunnel wall. I dropped my rope bag onto my belt in order to drag it behind me. I looked up and adjusted my helmet strap. At this point I suddenly heard Dai swearing loudly over and over and over again. And at this exact same moment, a face appeared in front of me and blew pipe smoke in my face. I saw the face clearly. He was a gentleman in his fifties. 
very rugged looking, with a cloth cap, with a tallow candle affixed to the peak. He promptly disappeared leaving me coffin. It was now very apparent that something was amiss. I hitched my rope bag back up and scrambled the quick way back to die. I had no idea why he was shouting and swearing. It was very rare for him to curse. I slid down through the tight hole we had created and saw Dye sitting on the floor. Look at my lamp. It's gone out. Dye's headlight was still on the floor shining through the collapse. I raised my head and illuminated his storm lamp. It had indeed extinguished itself. But even more strangely it was swinging rather violently on the hook. Dye was very keen to get out sharply. We emerged to the surface. The storm had receded. Of course the conversation very quickly recounted the event from Dye's perspective. He detailed that mere moments after I shouted, I'm going to give it a go, his storm lamp banged against the wall and went out. Then I explained what happened to me. Dai has never been there again. I have never ever seen anyone so terrified. We arrived at the car, first things first, a cup of tea, followed by the review of the fuel level in the storm lamp. Dai confirmed that there was plenty and set about lighting it. The lamp burst into life straight away and happily sat there, emitting its therapeutic light. It was now around three in the morning. I was rather excited about the proceedings, so saw fit to ring Sai, who lives about 15 miles away. I gave him an exciting account of what happened, which he agreed justified calling him at such a ridiculous hour. He explained that he was passing through the area later the same day and would go to the collapse to see what was happening. Later that evening, Sai called me. He had just left the mine and detailed that the entire tunnel had now collapsed with such ferocity that fragmented rock had spewed many metres along the tunnel. The three of us agreed that the theory we held was pretty much confirmed. There is a miner who looks after people, and on occasions warns them of danger, and in the case of imminent danger, he steps up his game. Our next poll to guest is fellow Geordie podcaster Icy Sedgwick. Icy hosts the Fabulous Folklore podcast, as well as blogging about folklore, and she writes dark fantasy, supernatural mysteries, gothic horror, and western fiction. I made a guest appearance on Icy's Halloween podcast special, the link to which is in this podcast episode description if you want to check it out. We met up at Newcastle's oldest building, the Castle Keep, and while sitting in a small room in that near 1,000-year-old fortress, which as you'll hear is incredibly close to a train track, we discussed all manner of things paranormal. Whilst we were together, I took the opportunity to ask Icy if she's ever seen a ghost. And this is what she had to say. Go on, tell us your ghost story. It's not necessarily scary, but it's definitely the one that unsettled me and definitely had me go, oh, hello here, this is a bit strange. Mm -hmm. And I'd gone to Mary King Close in Edinburgh, which, I I mean, I've been down there about three or four times, absolutely love the place. I've investigated it twice. Did you you see anything... Um, well, the two, uh, the first time I did it was with an events company called Mysteria Paranormal, who don't exist anymore. Um, and there was a lot of. I mean, I've, I've, this isn't. Listeners of my podcast will know all of this anyway because this isn't necessarily new. Um, but the, that was a very strange one because there was a lot of people who were saying, like, oh, the, there's. I smell this or I sense that. And it was a very strange investigation but the second time I did it there was just four of us and to get to get four people into Mary King's close is next to impossible so I was very very lucky to be able to do it but um, I don't think either nights were particularly eventful 
Well, mine was just one of the ordinary bog standard tours that you do. Yeah. And I was on it on my own. And for some reason, I can't remember why, I was sort of like towards the back. And it was just before you go down the actual street bit where okay. they take the photo of you. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was at the back and I happened to just movement caught my eye and I'd sort of like turned and looked back along where we'd just been mm. and I just saw this person this figure and from what I can remember whoever it was was quite tall and wearing like a long sort of either bodice and skirt or just a long dress one of the two but there was definitely a, a skirt involved and just kind of walked across like about three or four rooms back you know how they're just kind of one yeah, after yeah. the other so you can see all the way uh-huh. through but there was clearly no one there in terms of pre like tour groups after us. Obviously, it was just this one lone person just walked across on their own. So um, I kind of waved my way down the thing, and I sort of said to the guy, like, can I ask you a, a weird question? He's like, definitely. I was like, my kind of guy. Yeah. So I was like, is there a tour guide like, immediately, or a tour group immediately behind us? And he says, no, no, they're upstairs. And then you suddenly heard the noise, and he says, you know, there's nobody in the, in the, okay. the last run after us. Why? And I says, oh, like, I've just... I swear I've just seen someone and he just kind of like looked at us really funny and he's like alright then and I'm like surely people tell you this stuff all the time and I guess it's one of those things where I don't see things no uh, you know, and I think it was just the fact that having that movement, because obviously you have the thing when you go in like Annie's room and you're like, yeah. oh, was someone tugging on my coat, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah. Et but that one, because it was so definitely a figure, human sized, looked quite solid actually, but wasn't a person, because they don't have a person in that kind no. of costume wandering around, because I checked. So I don't know if it was just an echo of someone going about their daily business who's totally unaware of us. Or if it was, you know, I genuinely don't know. So it wasn't scary. It was just really like, I was like, what on earth have I just seen? You've seen a ghost? I hope so, because that would be super cool if I had. Sounds like it. (laughs) Well done. Yay. Do I get a prize? Yeah. (laughs) You can check out Icy's website over at icysedgwick.com and there's links on there to her podcast and blog. In this podcast's episode description is the link to her website, the direct link to her blog, and the link to the Halloween special, which was a chat with yours truly. Our next story comes from Jim, who got in touch from County Antrim to tell of a terribly sad and totally unexplainable incident that occurred to him in the autumn of 2019. The 27th of September 2019 was a Friday, and I was off work. I was having a lazy afternoon playing FIFA on my PlayStation, and my phone started vibrating next to me. I glanced at the screen and it was my brother, I was close to the end of a match and I was playing against somebody online, so I figured I'd call him back in a few minutes when I was done. I didn't have the voicemail switched on, so he couldn't leave a message. At the end of my game I picked up my phone to phone him back when it started vibrating again. It was my dad. I answered it and knew straight away that something was wrong. James, he said, I've some bad news. He told me that my brother had been in a bad car crash an hour earlier and he had died on his way to hospital. he passed away 45 minutes ago. Our final listener story takes us to the northwest of England. This listener is asked to remain anonymous, so we will call him Michael. It's only fair to warn you that Michael's story could potentially be upsetting for some listeners, as it includes the subject of a suicide. Also, the audio recording that Michael sent me, that you'll hear all about in his story, is truly disturbing once you hear the context behind its origins. To the point 
where I had to think twice about whether to include it. Please don't take this warning lightly. I am 32, and I was born and raised in the northwest of England. I won't say specifically where for reasons that will become clear. In the August of 2021, I split up with my girlfriend of eight years. She kept the house, and I got the dog, who I'll call Rover for the purpose of this tale. It was a fairly amicable split, we'd just grown apart, but I did hope that there may be a chance of trying again. So rather than buying a place of my own, I decided to rent a flat. I managed to rent a little one bedroom flat which was cheap, but completely unfurnished with the exception of a bed, a fridge freezer, and a temperamental washing machine. I got a television from the ex's house, some basic kitchen essentials and Rover's bed and his toys. I thought I'd struggle to adapt to single life, but me and Rover were okay. I was in an upstairs flat and my downstairs neighbours were quiet enough. I was able to work from home for a while with it being the tail end of the Covid pandemic and even when I had to go back into work, I wasn't too far from my parents and they were happy to take Rover. Things could certainly have been worse. And then suddenly one weekend in the autumn, it was probably early October, everything suddenly was worse. An awful lot worse. It started as a fairly uneventful weekend. My dad came around on the Saturday morning with some additional furniture he'd gotten hold of for me. Nothing new. It was all second hand. But I was grateful of it. There was an old heavy wooden office desk and a chair. A set of bedside drawers and a big double-doored wardrobe. And they were all in different colours of wood. I had a good day. I took Rover for a long walk as it was a particularly nice day especially for the time of year. I sorted the flat out, setting up the laptop on my desk, tidying the wires away all nicely, putting clothes into the wardrobe and my bedside drawers. My flat was finally starting to feel like a home. But when I went to bed that night, things seemed wrong. It's difficult to say what I mean by that, but I knew as soon as I entered the bedroom that something wasn't right. It was freezing cold, far colder than the living room I'd just left and Rover wouldn't enter the room. He stood at the doorway whimpering. I even tried to coax him in with a treat, but he wouldn't enter the room. I had to move his bed out under the landing and leave the door open, as it was the only way I could get him to settle. I struggled to get to sleep. It was so cold, and I could hear a knocking every now and then. It sounded like it was in my bedroom, but I was assuming that it was to be my neighbours downstairs, as it wasn't especially late. That night I had an awful nightmare, and it was a nightmare that I would have time and time and time again, night after night after night. I could see the face of a man. He had short dark hair, greying at the sides, and he seemed to be in his forties or early fifties. I could see him clearly. His eyes were wide, his face was covered with blood, and he leaned over me while I slept in bed. I could smell his breath and he made this awful wheezing sound as he breathed. He'd stare at me, never seeming to blink. When I woke up in the morning following an awful night's sleep, the left wardrobe door was wide open, and some of my clothes had fallen off the hangers. I thought nothing of it and hung the clothes back up, and Rover was happy to come into the bedroom now too. Sunday daytime was fine, but then when bedtime came, once again Rover wouldn't enter the bedroom. I had the same nightmare, and the next morning the wardrobe door was wide open and my clothes had fallen down again. 
This continued nightly, and then things started to get even stranger. It was probably five or six nights after the nightly horrors had begun, and I couldn't sleep. It was so cold in my bedroom that my teeth were chattering, and I could hear a quiet knocking, seeming to come from somewhere inside my bedroom. Then I saw it. I saw the left wardrobe door slowly open. I heard the rattle of the coat hangers, and to my horror, I saw a dark man-shaped figure step out of the wardrobe into my bedroom. The figure stood still. I was frozen to the spot with fear. I was staring at him, and even though I could see no features, I knew that he was staring at me. He then took a step towards me, so I quickly reached over and flicked on the bedside lamp. There was no one there. I stood up, looking all around, but there was no one there. I was alone. The wardrobe door was open though, and my clothes had fallen down. I hung them back up, and I laughed out loud, telling myself off for letting my imagination run wild. However, when I went back to bed, I was too afraid to turn the light off. When I woke up in the morning following an awful night's sleep, the wardrobe door was open again. This door opening every night was something that I thought about constantly, obsessively. Could it be that the door wasn't on properly? Could it be that something wasn't level and it was fallen open? I took the door off and put it back on. I used a spirit level to check that it was level, and it was. I checked where the wardrobe was stood on the floor, and it was level. I couldn't work out why the door opened every night, and only at night. I hadn't told anybody about this. I was worried people would think I was going crazy. Although I had spoken to my neighbours who lived in the downstairs flat for the previous 30 years, and I asked them casually about who lived in my flat in the years beforehand. But nobody they mentioned matched the description of this man I saw in my nightmares. I also asked them about the nightly knocking, but they said they couldn't hear it, and they had no idea what I was talking about. Somebody I work with, who I'll call Steve, goes on paranormal investigations, so after two weeks of these nightly occurrences I told him all about it. He offered to come and carry out an investigation in my flat, but that seemed crazy to me. I can imagine going looking for ghosts in an old castle or an old stately home, but a ghost hunt in a tiny one-bedroom flat that was built in the 1970s seemed ridiculous. But then Steve made a suggestion that I could get on board with. His idea was that I spend a night away from my flat and leave an audio recorder in the bedroom to see what it captures, if anything. I needed to travel for work overnight anyway, so I left the dog with my parents and left the voice recorder that Steve loaned me on my bedside table. It was fully charged, and the little digital screen said that it would record up to 48 hours of audio. So I pressed record, checked it was working, and left the flat. I got home the following day, after having an incredibly sound night's sleep in a hotel. I had forgotten all about the voice recorder, until I walked into the bedroom and found it lying on the floor. It was switched off. The left wardrobe door was open, and my clothes had fallen down again. I turned it on, and found out that it had stopped after around 7 hours of recording, which means it had recorded until around 11pm the night I'd left. I didn't dare listen to it alone in my flat, so I copied the audio file onto my laptop and emailed it over to Steve. I had another restless night, the same mysterious knocking, the same icy chill, the same nightmare, the same wardrobe door open in the morning. That day, it was a Thursday, was the day that everything became clear. 
My dad came around about midday, bringing Rover home for me after he and mum had taken care of him while I'd been away. I thanked him and he spotted that I had a spirit level out and asked if I'd been doing some DIY. I explained to him that the left hand side wardrobe door he'd brought over kept opening. Every single night without fail. He offered to take a look and he couldn't see anything wrong with it. He checked everything I'd already checked. He jokingly suggested nailing it shut and just using the right hand door. I asked him where he'd gotten it from, not thinking too much about it. He said that he'd gotten it from a house he was asked to clear out. My dad's a removal man. After the man who owned the house had died. He then said, It's an awful story to be honest. That evening I received a text from my dad with a link to a news story. I clicked on it and it was the story of the man who died. He'd been a teacher in a school for 13 to 16 year olds and had had a sixth form for up to 18 year olds. A rumour had spread that he had an inappropriate relationship with a 14 year old schoolgirl. The teacher was suspended while an investigation was carried out. His parents had put pressure on the school after hearing from their kids about the teacher. One day he was out early in the evening having popped into a local shop near to where he lived when three drunk sixth form students saw him and jumped on him calling him all sorts of names relating to the rumour of what they thought he'd done. One of them kicked him in the face breaking his nose before some onlookers broke it up and the police were called. He didn't wait for the police he got to his feet and headed home covered in blood. That night he took his own life. He was 48 years old. There was a photograph of the man. This was the man I'd seen every night in my nightmare since the wardrobe had been moved into my flat. I drove straight to a furniture store and bought a flat pack wardrobe. I raced home, well aware it was now after dark. And I emptied all of my clothes out of the wardrobe, throwing them on the bed. And I went to take it apart. As I checked as quickly as I could for an Allen key which fitted, the bedroom lights went out and the left hand door swung open with force. In the darkness I pushed the door closed and I could feel someone on the other side pushing back. I fumbled in my pocket for my phone and I turned the torch on, pointing it at the wardrobe door. The pushing stopped. But then I could hear the knocking I knew so well. It was coming from inside the wardrobe. I put the light back on and dismantled the wardrobe as quickly as I could and took it piece by piece down the stairs, out of the flat and put it in my garage. I put up the new wardrobe and by now it was almost midnight. I put my clothes away and went to bed. That night Rover didn't hide away on the landing. He came into the bedroom. The icy chill was gone. I slept like a baby. My nightmares were over. I told my dad a white lie. I told him somebody at work had offered me a brand new wardrobe they came into possession of, as I truly did appreciate him thinking of me when he was clearing out that house. The reality was that I considered giving it to a charity shop, but I didn't want anybody else to have to endure the nightly horrors that I had. So it stayed in my garage until the beginning of November, and then I gave it to some kids who were collecting wood to put on their bonfire. But why was he seemingly haunting that wardrobe? And did I do the wrong thing when I got rid of that wardrobe? That's a question I'll ask myself for the remainder of my life, but I didn't see an alternative. When I was next in the office I saw Steve, and he mentioned the audio recording that I'd completely forgotten about. It turns out that it had captured something that he wanted me to hear. We sat at his laptop and he played it for me. 
It was worse than I could have expected. It was my nightmare right there in audio form. I was so pleased I had not heard that when the wardrobe was in my house. I was almost sick the first time I heard it. The only people who have heard it are myself and Steve. But I have attached it for you to share on your podcast. I'd love to know what people think of it. I just can't bring myself to listen to it again. Thanks for letting me get this off my chest, as I can't tell anybody I know about this or they'll think I'm crazy. All the best, Michael. I will now play for you the audio file that Michael sent me. It was recorded in his flat when he was away for work and it was completely empty. Our final poll to guest is Nikki Wright, who along with her husband Charles is across the pond in Indiana in the United States, and who is about to launch a brand new paranormal podcast called The World's Most Haunted. Nikki has become a good friend since we first spoke in the very early days of How Haunted. She grew up surrounded by demons and would regularly be attacked. She was kind enough to send me an audio file so I can share with you some of her experiences. Hey Rob, so nice to be able to share my stories with you and all of your listeners. I had trouble choosing which stories to include because there's just so many over my course of living where I do... I'll also keep you posted after I send this because talking about them always makes them come out and I'm sure I'll get a bunch of new stuff for you to hear. I've lived in this house for 20 years and it's always been a creepy, creaky old house, but the reason isn't because it was built in the 70s, it's because it's haunted by very active spirits who I believe at least one of is a demon. I can't count the number of times as a child I either woke up from a dead sleep or couldn't fall asleep at all because of something opening my door or turning the TV off or worse, feeling hands on me that weren't there or something moving the mattress. Even just before I wrote this, I was trying to take a nap on the couch and heard what sounded like nails tapping on the glass coffee table next to me. As a child, I'd hear disembodied voices, see full-body apparitions of a large man like a pitch-black silhouette, or a young girl, or an old woman, both in period clothing. Things would get thrown around the house, or you'd see even more drastic things. 
One particular story is when I, my sister, and parents were in the kitchen and a large chef's knife came flying out of the rotating dolly it was in and landed at my sister's feet. We all just looked at each other, but we all knew what it was, and at that point, we're all almost used to the things that happened in the house. But things still happened that sent me running wherever another living person was. Like one afternoon in the summer, I was playing video games. I had to be around 17, and something just made me look over at the model solar system I had hanging from the ceiling. A hand that was see-through, but still mottled and gray, almost like it was moldy, slapped the planet that represented Jupiter and the whole model went spinning out of control. I remember so many times walking through the hallways at night feeling like someone was right at my heels, as if they were so close that I could feel almost electricity, like what you feel when somebody's too close. It was especially bad during thunderstorms. I refuse to look in mirrors, even to this day, because I just feel as though somebody is going to be there looking back at me. When I was probably 10, I was cleaning my closet in my room, and in my periphery, I saw the man for the first time. He had to be six or seven feet tall. He looked so enormous, and the only thing that wasn't pitch black about him was the knife in his right hand. I ran so hard and so fast, I almost fell on my face. When I got to my mother, I just fell into her and cried. Three years after that, my brother and sister and I decided to watch the Amityville Horror in our haunted house. Very stupid idea. It was dead silent in the movie, and from the room that at the time was my sister's, we all hear this inhuman shriek like the combination of a yelping dog and a screaming woman. My siblings and I ran to the backyard, but my brother went back into the house. He was armed with a bat, but nobody was there. I refused to be alone in the house until I was 16, and for a very good reason. The spirits were aggressive and almost antagonistic in wanting to frighten me. For example, I always knew not to play music out loud in the house. It always riles them up and makes them more active. But one day, I decided to brave the spirits. I was 14, mom and dad were out, my sister and brother had moved out, and I had to practice my cello. I maybe got three notes into the song before I looked up from my music stand and saw a full-body apparition of an old woman in period clothing, almost blue, drift by the glass doors leading into the living room and into the wall. I was so scared I didn't even scream. I just went outside as fast as I could, left everything as it was, my cello fell, and I called my grandma to come get me. When she pulled up and I got in the car, she looked at me and said, verbatim, you look like you've seen a ghost. I could not even laugh. I just sat there, pale-faced, heart-pounding, too afraid to even look up at the windows. The activity got worse as I got older. I'd get out of the shower covered in scratches, and I mean covered. They were always these three uniform scratches coupled up together all over my body. I'd wake up with bruises in places that made no sense, and one day I moved my bed to clean under it, and in the floor molding were five unmistakable claw marks, as if someone were being dragged down into the subfloor of the house and their nails had raked claws into the wall and the molding. The worst and most vivid memory, though, is the night I had a dream about the ghost who tormented me the most. I still have trouble saying her name inside the house, even though after all of these years, I'm pretty desensitized to all the activity. In the dream, I was walking into the hallway leading from my room. It was dark, and I looked down at the end of the wall where her silhouette was standing. 
I turned on the light and saw her there, skin gray, face malevolent, wet and drenched, black hair sticking to her skin and white dress. She rushed me, and I grabbed her by the throat, pounding her head into the wall, screaming for her to die. The dream ended there, and I woke up. I walk into the dark hallway, look up, and there is her silhouette, standing at the end of the hall. My heart sunk so low and so fast, I felt like I'd pass out. But thankfully, I turned on the light, and she vanished. We have cleansed the house multiple times, and the activity dies down for a while, but then over time it picks back up. I don't go in the house while it's being cleansed, because the first time, we were all in the basement praying over the home, and I suddenly felt white-hot pain scratching all the way down my spine between my shoulder blades. When I lifted my shirt for my mom to check, there was a long, red scratch. I'm not the only one of my family who has had experiences. My sister, my brother, my husband, and my mother all have stories. Strangely, they don't bother my dad at all, but my mother has reported seeing what looks like an imp or a goblin at the end of her bed, being too scared to move. She's seen the man, the pitch-black silhouette, rush her from down the hallway. She's heard my voice calling for her when I'm not home, something my husband has also experienced, and has seen animals like dogs and cats that aren't there. She and I seem to see the most activity. The most recent and most physical experience I had was late at night, shortly after me and my husband got married. I felt something touching my face so lightly that I thought it was a stray hair. When I went to brush it away, something grabbed the second knuckle of my forefinger so hard that it hurt. My husband said he felt me jump so high that I cleared about an inch above the sheets. The worst part is that when it grabbed my finger and I looked up, it was that same mottled gray hand that sent my mobile flying years before. I have so, so many stories. I really do. I seem to be a ghost magnet because almost every place I've worked or lived or gone to school has had a haunting. When I worked at the hardware store in town, there was even a joke that the ghost of a heart attack victim who haunted it had a crush on me because he would knock things over when I wasn't there and people would mention my name. I've seen the shadow of a deceased employee walk down the hall of the insurance office I worked at. I've seen a stall door slam shut in an otherwise empty bathroom in my elementary school. I don't know what it is, but ghosts seem to follow me everywhere I go. But I'll leave you with this last little experience. I'm returning home from work at about 11 o'clock at night. My neighbor Rosie had died about a year prior. As I swing onto the road, my headlights illuminate the unmistakable face of Rosie in her knit sweater, walking her dog who had passed just before she did. I went to tell my mother, and after reporting what I had seen, she went slack-jawed. She told me she had just seen Rosie walking up the path to our house earlier that day. Merry Christmas, and Happy Holidays to you and yours. If you want to hear a teaser and find out more about the hosts of this forthcoming podcast, head over to theworldsmosthaunted.com. Thank you so much to everybody who contributed to this episode with your stories. If you have a ghost story to share, please get in touch over at HowHauntedPod on Twitter or Instagram, or send me an email at rob at how-haunted.com. I'd love to do another episode of this nature. I would sincerely like to thank you for listening to How Haunted. In the last week or so, the podcast has reached the landmark of a quarter of a million downloads, which I never, ever expected, when I first started the podcast on a whim back in September of 2022. I hope you have an incredible Christmas, if you celebrate it. And if you don't, 
I hope you have a wonderful holiday period. And all the very, very best to you and yours for the new year. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation talking you through the history, ghost stories and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more, there's a free 7 day trial at a £3 tier, so you could get access right now to the Christmas Patreon episode, which sees me spend the night at Kielder Castle in Northumberland. And all of the other special episodes are waiting for you right now. This includes the big Halloween special at the Golden Fleece in York, Bedlam Theatre, the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, the Camo Estate and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show, but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2, perhaps as a Christmas gift to me, at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. There won't be an episode next week with it being the Christmas period, but I'll be back on the 5th of January, a month that is going to focus on haunted dolls. And what's more, the January Patreon episode will see me spend 48 hours locked away with nothing but a supposedly haunted doll of my very own for company. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Have a fantastic Christmas time and a very happy new year to you. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question How haunted? <laughs> <laughs>